It's Monday night, and you know where to find us. Here on Iron Sports, this is Oldies. 95.9-1069, I'm Mike Balsamo, and Ira not in studio with us tonight, and Ira, we'll get into everywhere you've been. You've been, this has been one of your craziest uh, weeks and months, but first, where are you literally right now? Because there's some sports, uh, you know, some sports tie into it. Well, I'm in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and I'm uh, just two blocks from the War Memorial in Johnstown, which is, if anyone is a big sports fan of movies, a lot of people think Slapshot is the best sports movie of all time. I don't agree with it. It's the best sports movie of all time. But I'm only two blocks from where Paul Newman and Slapshot and, and uh, the Johnstown. What, what, they, what was the name of the movie? I forget the, what they called them in, that, in the Jets or whatever in the movie. But, uh, but, yeah, this is like the historic Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so, Ira, like I said, you're not in studio. And good reason for that. You've been all over the place, man. And we're going to talk all about it. Tell us. Dodger games on Tuesday and Wednesday against the Padres. Saw everything there. I saw rain in L.A., which was a surprise, and then a goose landing on the field uh, in the middle of a field stopping the game for a while while they have people trying to capture the goose. And then I was at the Penn State-Michigan game, which I think I saw first half, which I couldn't believe, where uh, one team had uh, one first down and the other team had 18 first downs and, and was only down by two points. And then I saw something that maybe more surprising, the fact that the Pittsburgh Steelers is 10-point underdogs beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So a lot of surprises all around. Uh, we have so much to talk about this week. Charlestown Chiefs, the, their name in, in Slapshot. Charlestown, <laughs> Charlestown, yeah, Charlestown Chiefs. So Tyler Kepner is going to join us right around 740. Tell us a little bit about Tyler. Tyler is a New York Times baseball writer. He's been writing. He's been covered every World Series for the last 22 years. He's missed like two games in 22 years, so that's pretty cool as someone. And uh, he wrote a book called uh, The Greatest Stage, A History of the World Series. So I think we're right in the heart of baseball season. I mean, everyone's been watching the baseball playoffs, which has been crazy. So he's going to have a great book out about the uh, – he's been on every show. He's been on Good Morning America Today show talking about this book, and I read it. It's an excellent book. So don't forget, you can follow Ira. Like, like you said, he's going coast to coast. If there's a good sports event, you can follow along anywhere on social media at Ira on Sports. Okay, Ira, let's get into it. First game here, and this was going to be a series where nobody thought that the Padres really had a shot. Everyone before the season started just put the Dodgers in the World Series automatically. Let's go back to game one and talk about how it didn't quite pan out for L.A. Yeah, I mean, it, it was crazy. I mean, the fact that in the, uh, the first game – it, 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 this is a, the Dodgers have owned the Padres. They've won 14 out of 19 games this year. They've won the last nine series. They've outscored the Padres this year, 109 to 47, and they were 22 games ahead of them. I mean, you had all the, the storylines of Manny Machado was a Dodger for like half a season. Then he went down to the Padres. Trey Turner and Soto were teammates on the Nats. Uh, Turner plays for the Dodgers. Soto, of course, for the Padres. And Josh Hader now is a Padre. But you know, the Dodgers first game looked. It looked like what was going to, you know, you were nervous with the week off, well, how the Dodgers were going to perform because they really haven't been playing a meaningful game in months with such a big lead. They went up 5 nothing, um, and Urias was unhittable. But, uh, in the ba- but the bases loaded in the bottom of the third, bets flied out the centers. You're like, you could have really broken that game open and made it like 8 9 nothing. They didn't. But the Padres scored two runs. Myers came up. And it was 5-3 the rest of the way. Bullpen looked good. But it was like, the game got a lot closer than you thought. But, like, look, the Dodgers won. They're up one nothing. They're going to cruise to an easy victory in the series. And that's what I was thinking as a fan myself. Like, all right, well, here we go. Dodgers going to win this in, in three games, maybe four. So let's go to game two where the, uh, the luck changed. Well, it was uh, Clayton Kershaw and Hugh Darvish. And Hugh Darvish is interesting because a couple years ago, he pitched game seven against the Astros 
in the World Series and was horrendous and gave up like seven runs. And Kershaw was the debate was should Kershaw pitch that game on three days rest, which they did pitch Kershaw on three days rest, but he came in to relieve Darvish in that game. Uh, and Kershaw, we've had, we're going to talk uh, to Tyler about his whole idea, the fact that he's this great you know, regular season pitcher, one of the greatest of all time, but in the postseason he's below average. Uh, but you know both pitchers did not pitch well. I mean they had pitched five innings, uh, three runs. Machado had a home run in the first inning, but as Freeman for the Dodgers matched it uh, with a home run. Uh, Muncy had a home run. Trey Turner had a home run. It was three three going the sixth. But Trey Turner in that sixth inning. I mean I'm sitting right there, right behind home plate, and you could see the ball. And Turner, I think he fell asleep. I mean there was men on first and second. And he just—he didn't even try for the ball, and he just like threw it to second. He could have easily thrown it to first. Nola, the catcher, was running, but instead, for the last out, he just like flipped it to the second baseman, and then everybody's safe. And then that let the Padres go up four-three. And the Dodgers, that next inning, the Dodgers Gatterall made a great play. Bellinger made a play, play, play. But in the seventh and eighth innings, the Dodgers were getting like bases loaded, sack two men on, bases loaded could not score. I mean, it was unbelievable how Turner made a bad out, Smith made a bad out. In the eighth inning, they brought up Barnes instead of Taylor, and, and Dave Roberts was a stupid mistake because he actually lost his DH when he made that, that change, bringing that in. But uh, it was, that was nuts. And then, then the goose fell out, you know, flew in the field. First they were playing. You know, I looked at this, I go, this is big. A goose is much bigger than a normal bird. And it's like <laughs> in the middle behind second base. And they kept playing, and I'm like, they got it. Then, it's, then it flew behind uh, the on-deck circle, and they finally had to take it off. But that was crazy. I think it was a sign, I guess, the Padres tied a turn. But, uh, and then Hayter, who had been pitching terribly the last, I would say, you know, he hadn't pitched well for a walk. That's why I traded him. He didn't pitch well for the Padres. Now he's totally lights out, goes and strikes everybody out in, you know, four-out save, and they win. So it's been a tied at 1-1 going to San Diego uh, for game three. Yeah, and I got to tell you, you know, as someone who has followed Hayter, you're really nervous with him coming into the game there because, like you said, he's been – uncharacteristically bad for the last two months, came in and shut it down. Now we go to game three, and this is a game where you're going to see Tony Gonsolin, who got, I think, 20 wins, versus Blake Snell, who's just so up and down. You have no idea what pitcher you're getting night night to night. Well, remember, Blake Snell in 2020 at the uh, COVID series, he was in game six. He was pitching lights out and is pulled by his manager, Kevin Cash, for the Jays against the Dodgers, helping the Dodgers win the World Series. So it sort of now he's getting revenge on the Dodgers. This was the first. We're going to see this a lot between the Phillies, the Padres, uh, the fact that in Seattle, really, that the, it was our first play, home playoff game since 2004. In 18 years, they haven't had a home playoff game. And since then, they have a whole new Petco Park and all this other thing. Um, but Blake Snell pitched great, five innings, one run. Uh, Goslin they could, was on like a 75 pitch count, but he, even, he only made it to 50. And the Dodgers scored in, scored, uh, in the first, but then Grisham had a home run. Uh, the Dodgers were, you know, and then, uh, then it, it, was, it was 2-1 in the fifth inning, uh, after the fifth inning. But the, again, the uh, Dodgers couldn't score. They just could not score, and the Padres ended up winning 2-1. And it's like, wow. I mean, this is where the clutch hitting of the Dodgers, that's what they're great for. They go one through nine. Everybody can hit. And, they, you know, to score one run was horrendous. So then going into uh, game four, Joe Musgrove, the guy they just paid a lot of money to, and he's going to you know, pitch his biggest start ever in a Padres uniform. Yeah, I mean, he was against Anderson for the Dodgers. And, you know, the one thing in game three was that you all – you got the, the, the Padres relievers who were questionable during the year. I mean, that's why they were 22 games out. But uh, Suarez, Hayter, they all threw over 100 miles an hour. They pitched, you know, the seventh, eighth, and ninth. I mean, Hayter turned into this – you're like, wow. I mean, this is the old hater that was like lights out for like months at a time, and he and he got the magic back. 
And then in game four, Musgrove comes in, Anderson for the Dodgers. Freeman drove in two runs, are up 2 nothing. In the seventh, the Dodgers make it 3-0. Now, I was in Michigan at this time, so I had to go to sleep because I had watched the Penn State-Michigan game, and I knew I had to drive to Tampa. I mean, Tampa, drive to Tampa, drive to Pittsburgh for the Tampa game. So I literally had to go to bed because I was going to have like a three-hour sleep. I said, okay, 3-0, Dodgers are going to win, we're going to have a game five. And then, you know, everything fell apart. They pulled Anderson. Roberts, of course, gets criticized for this all the time, uh, pulling starters that are playing great. And the Dodgers ended up, you know, scoring five runs. In the, I mean, the Padres scored five runs in the seventh and uh, make it 5-3. And then you got Suarez gets three outs. Hader gets strikes out the side. And there's the series. The Dodgers, who won 111 games, you know, are eliminated in the first round. Unfreaking believable. Yeah, no, totally unbelievable. One thing, you know, I said this about a month ago on this show about the Padres, and when they got the new influx of talent with the Soto, with the um, with the Josh Bell, they changed up their lineup completely, and they moved guys like Jake Cronenworth and Jerickson Profar, who had been fantastic for them all season, down to like 7th and 8th in the order. And they fell apart. The other guys didn't work. Now you're seeing them move these guys back up, and the lineup looked different. They looked better in this series, and they're actually you know scoring runs. I, I think the Padres are a really dangerous team going forward. It's Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, seven ten. In case you're wondering, the New York Yankees are in a rain delay. Probably going to be at least an hour on this one. A lot of rainfall in the Bronx. Do you want to talk about anything here with um you know the Dodgers and Braves? Because like this is everyone kind of pinned, pinned this for the ALCS, and now it's not. <laughs> No, I, I sort of meant to. Yeah, feel, right. I mean, I think that's what I what I said was, I think everyone felt this was the Dodgers and Braves when the Braves beat the Mets, and I think that's what people thought. I mean, I wrote in my outline, wrote her outline. You're looking at what I wrote. I said Dodgers Braves because that's what I thought. Of. Everyone thought there's no, no Dodgers are going to win. The Braves are going to win. The Braves are going to beat the Phils. And I just, it's amazing that both the Braves and the Dodgers teams that uh, teams that won what 87, 86, and 88 game or 87, 89 games. You know, we're able to defeat teams that won 101 and 111 games. It's just, it's crazy. And it, I do think, and also, I mean, this whole playoff format was that the teams on the road, like you're going to have, the Dodgers are going to have a break of a week. The Braves are going to have a break of a, of a week of a, a, a week off, and that'll rest them up. But it, it hurt against them. I mean, you have all these teams, and if the Yankees lose tonight, it would be three out of the four teams that had this, uh, had the break, had that, you know, didn't have to play that first series. It, it didn't help them. So, I mean, that's why this playoff format, I mean, the part of it I don't like. I mean, you play a whole 162 game season, and teams that are 22 games back and 24 games back end up are going to be playing in the World Series. So, you know, talking about the Phillies. This is a team I thought they could beat the Cardinals. I had a good feeling just because they have two aces. And, you know, all you need to do is win two games and, you know, you're setting yourself up. But going into this series, I thought they had no shot against the Braves, Ira. The Braves have just been hitting on all cylinders. They're a better team every position. And, again, baseball gods, you know, were just not in their favor. Well, I mean, this is like in tw- the Phil's record was 23 and 29 when they fired Girardi, who actually has been on television saying that he really had the team ready to go and he should have been fired and all this other stuff. But Rob Thompson became the manager. And this is reminds you of the Nationals a few years ago. Remember, the Nationals had that horrendous record and then turned it on and, 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 and won the World Series. But in the first game, look, they're going against Max Fried of the Braves, who was the last time he started the postseason, won the World Series over the Astros, was like unhittable for seven innings. 
I mean, he was he gave he was one of the best pitchers in baseball. Three innings, eight hits, four runs pulled from the game. Nick Castellano was three for five. Uh, the only reason why it was close was seven three, and then Olson for the Braves hit a home run, made it seven six. But then they got the final out. But I think the fact that the Braves lose at home that first game, and they were I mean, this is the one thing about this series. I mean, the Dodgers at least were in the games and they were close. The Braves got blown out. I mean, really, they were blown out of that game one. So game two again, I mentioned you know Philly having two aces. Zach Wheeler's going to be on the hill, and like now they should be in real trouble. Kyle Wright's pitched uh, good as well, so what happened in this one? Well, in this one, Kyle Wright did. It was the one Braves pitcher that came to pitch, and he six innings, two hits, and uh, they were able to. I mean, act, it was exciting because Zach Wheeler hit Acuna. There was a whole uh, problem with whether he hit the pitch, and, you know, everyone was, and then he fell apart. But the Braves win that game 3-0, and you're like, okay, the Braves are in control. They won 3-0. They're going to win this series. That Forget about that game one with Max Fried. They'll be set to go. And then uh, just what happened in, uh, uh, in Philadelphia was crazy. Yeah, so the, the series shifts back to Philadelphia. We're tied up, and you're like, all right, well, now is where the Braves are going to take over this series, and it couldn't have been farther from true. Well, the Philly fans were out of control. I mean, they were loud, and that's what you saw in San Diego and Philadelphia, that these, these fan base, I mean, the Dodger fans are great. I was at the stadium. It's exciting. I mean, the fan, I, I can't criticize Dodger fans. They're awesome. I mean, it, they're great, but the Phils haven't been in the postseason in 11 years, just like the Padres are 14, and those fans, you just saw it on TV. They're going nuts. The fanatics running around everyone, everyone screaming, and the Phillies players seem to love these fans. I mean, Haskins and, and Harper, they just fit in. I mean, they're the mindset with the beards and the, you know, they're, they're, they love it. And uh, it was Aaron Nola versus Strider, and it was like the Phils got six runs in the third on Hoskins' three-run home run, and then Harper had a two-run home run. This game was over. I mean, the Phils won 9-1. I was watching this in the airport flying to Detroit, and it, it was just embarrassing that the Braves could be, were beat so poor, bad. Yeah, and then game four, it was kind of much of the same. I mean, it was another game where, uh, you know, the Braves just never really looked like the team that we saw for the you know prior 165 games. Well, it was like one of those games. You had Charlie Morton, who was record in elimination games, you know, from the Tampa Bay Rays and other players. I mean, in the Braves itself, he was five and zero with a zero seventy three ERA in, in five career uh, five elimination games in his career. But he got hit on his elbow in that first inning. Messed him up, and he gets Noah Syndergaard, who who has been totally inconsistent for the Phillies. But it, it was enough. I mean, Brandon Marsh does a three-run home run, and again, this game was four-one. Harper drove it another run. I mean, this game was over. I mean, it, to see what happened in Game Three and Game Four against you against the for the Braves for a team that like if you're a Mets fan, you're like, wait a second, this team didn't lose at all. Like for two months at a time, they catch the Mets who are ten and a half ahead, and suddenly they go out with a whimper. I mean, they were outscored what twenty-four to seven or twenty in in the in in the, in the series, it was it was horrendous. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. Tyler Kepner joins us at 740. Talk a little more baseball with him. So let's shift to the uh, to the AL side here. And Houston, everyone just automatically put them in, in the ALCS. And they're a really good team. But game one, if this went a little different, we might not be seeing, you know, things may not have panned out for them if it wasn't for uh, some late late heroics in game one. Well, I mean, one of the things we're talking about in baseball, Seattle and Cleveland are very, very young teams. And they I, I hope – now, Seattle has the money to keep them. I don't know if Cleveland has the money to keep their players. But Seattle, I mean, that first game, they're up 7-3 in the eighth inning. And then Bregman hits a home run, makes it 7-5. And then Jordi Alvarez, who had the series of a, of a lifetime, I mean, they, they're calling him Ruthian and Bonzian or whatever. He has three-run home run in the ninth for a win off. They, it was exciting. We're going to talk – 
you know, about Tyler Kepner, about what happens in the playoffs, is that you don't see this in the regular season. Robbie Ray, who's their Cy Young Award winner a couple years ago, uh, he came in to pitch for one, you know, one batter, Yuri Alvarez. You're bringing in a starter. He's only had made six relief appearances in his career, never had a save, comes in and gives up a three-run home run and blows the game. And, and Yuri Alvarez, a huge win. It's three for five with five RBIs. And the story of the game was that they won the game with Verlander, like Freed. You know, Freed and Verlander, two best pitchers in the game, got rocked. He had four innings pitched, gave up six runs. I mean, here's Verlander at 18 wins this year, 175 ERA, um, and had destroyed Seattle 5-1 and one during the regular season. But uh, what a win for the Astros. I mean, they were 0 for 8 in the postseason when trailing by more than a run after 8, and they came back with Alvarez's huge three-run home run to win that game. So going into Game 2, you're going to see a matchup of Framber Valdez, who's fantastic this year, kind of put, his, put himself on the map, versus Luis Castillo, who was their big deadline acquisition, who had been fantastic. And then Alvarez, the key of this game was Alvarez again. Another home run off Castillo to take the lead. Um, he's the first player to hit multiple home runs after six in a series with a team training. Other than, uh, I mean, they're, they're comparing him with, uh, I guess it was Ortiz and everything else. And then Bregman hit a single. I mean, Al- Altuve was 0 for 16 in the series. So Altuve did nothing. And, and here you have Alvarez who comes up with this just amazing series. And Bregman, too, I mean, with the big hits. And uh, Castillo, who was so good in last series, you know, he pitched well, but, 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 you know, the Astros were enough to win and go up 4-2, sending it to game three in Seattle, where they were, it was the first uh, playoff game in Seattle in 21 years. Crazy about that. But even crazier <laughs> is the fact that, you know, in the round prior, the uh, Mariners were locked up in a 15-inning ga- game with Toronto. And you think, wow, that's the longest we're going to have to play all season. Nope, because this one went 18. It was the longest. It wasn't for time, but I think it was the longest inning or tied uh, in playoff history with 18 innings. And, but it was the only game that was ever 0-0. Uh, of course, that you know, it's not like some pitcher pitched 18. They, I think the Astros used, what, seven or eight pitchers. The Lance McCullers started the game, six innings, two hits. And Kirby for the Mariners had seven innings and six hits, no runs. I mean, for the game, Altuve was 0 for 8 for the game. Alvarez even was 0 for 7. Bregman was good for 3 for 8. But finally, uh, uh, Jeremy Pena, uh, the young shortstop. I mean, remember, the Astros made a move at the beginning of the year where they let Correa go, their star shortstop. He's getting paid like 20, some, you know, 25, 30 million a year. Pena is getting paid, what, a half a million dollars a year. So they made that, that move, and it's really paying off because Pena had this great year, and it's been tremendous for them. And, and it's so, it, you know, everybody hates the Astros, but there's only like two or three players on the team that were part of the the garbage can scandal when they beat the Dodgers in the World Series. So it's like, you know, you can, you can boo Bregman and Altuve, but that's about it. The rest of the players are, are, are long. I can't wait for some of the players that were involved that not be on the Dodgers team, because the Dodgers love to boo all those fans, boo all those players. <laughs> what if they play on the Dodgers? That would be an issue. So, but it was amazing. The, the fact that Pena hits the home run in the top of the 18th inning and when you just you got to feel for the, the Mariners. I mean, they they were they literally were either tied or leading in the ninth, in like the eighth or ninth inning in every single game, and uh, they're just so close. And, and uh, but it's just a great season for Seattle. Tremendous. They said they beat uh, Toronto, and then to do this is pretty amazing. Yeah, something tells me they'll be investing in the bullpen here in the off season. So shifting uh, to the New York Yankees and the and the uh, Cleveland Guardians. This is one. This was a series that was really going to make or break Garrett Cole, at least in the media, because they were going to run him out of town if he didn't pitch well. So we got him in game one, and he did what he had to do. Yeah, 4-1. He had six innings pitched, four hits, one run. Judge was over three. That's the one thing about the, the, the series. 
is that, you know, it's 2-2, we have game five tonight, but the Yankees, Garrett Cole won his two starts, and, and, he, looks, and he looked great. Now, he gave up the home run. He, he gave up a home run to Quan. You're like, the only way you get hit Garrett Cole is at home run. But that's why these teams have got to get men on base so that the home runs matter, because, but uh, uh, Harrison Bader uh, hit another home run. Remember, I saw him when he, his first game, when I was following Judge. You know, he went to, I was reading that he went to Horace Mann in New York, and I was sitting in the stands, and there was, in that one section, there were like 30 of his friends there, and everyone criticized that trade for Cashman, including me, because you're like, you're giving up Jordan Montgomery and getting Harrison Bader, but boy, Harrison Bader has played great for the Yankees, they really need him, and he's been hitting more home runs than Judge has been recently. Yeah, so let's go to game two now, and... It's going to be Shane Bieber, who's a great pitcher for the Guardians, versus Nestor Cortez, who came out of nowhere this year, had a career year, made the All-Star team, and we thought this was going to be a really good pitching match. We didn't know which way it was going to go. I think they gave, it, was a, it was a 2-2 great pitching match. I think that it, what happened was Stanton had a home run, 2-0. The Indians then uh, tied it in the fifth, and then it was 2-2 going into the 10th inning, and then you're watching in the 10th inning, and you're like, you think the Yankees are going to win this game, but then Ramirez gets double, gets safe at third on a throwing error by Donaldson, which was awful, and then Gonzalez singles in Ramirez, and, and, uh, and, they, were able, and they got another double by Naylor, and it's 4-2, and it's like, wow. I mean, I was, I was on a plane flying watching that, and it's like one of those things where you're like, oh, my gosh, the Yankees are going to lose this game, and they end up losing. I mean, that was a, that was huge. It was a huge victory because, again, to, to even the series like that, in, and then take it back to Cleveland, so where all their fans are crazy and yelling, and you know such motivation for their their team. And something that needs to be said here here about this one: one, Jamison Tyone, who lost that game, he's going to be pitching tonight if, if the game does does go on. Um, but the other thing was, well, that's, you know, and that's what we talked about, Robbie Ray. And again, these when you're you, you think these teams think that these starters are great in relief. And it's really hard. I think it's a mistake these teams are making. I mean, you can think of the Kurt Schillings and the Randy Johnsons, how they did that. I mean, the elite starters have been able to pull this off. But I tell you, it is such a risk. I've seen it fail way more than it's successful, bringing in a starter like Talion Talon did in relief, when they're just not used to that. And, you know, he's not even that great a starting pitcher, but the fact is you bring him in relief and he gives up those hits, and I think you're right. He's starting tonight. Now he's going to have to wait two hours because of the rain. It's After, getting, after blowing game two, it's, he's going to remember that. And like you said, it's – I think it's like a preparation thing. These pitchers are meticulous with the things they do. They have a pregame thing. They probably wake up and eat the same breakfast at, at 8 a.m. that you know on days they're going to pitch. Putting these guys in, in, in the middle of the game just doesn't usually work out well. Like you said, the thing, though, you know, you're following along with this, and every time Judge makes an out or strikes out, you're sending me his stats and just how bad he'd been. What was Aaron Boone doing remaining with him in leadoff? I get down the stretch, the last six weeks of the season, if he can get a couple of extra ABs to try to get to 62, great. But now you're in the playoffs. This guy needs to be batting 2-3-4, not your leadoff hitter being your, your you know, best power hitter in the lineup. Made no sense to me, and finally in Game 3, they move him back down. And then he hits a home run. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in Game 3, it's a home run. But in this game, they're up 5-3. And again, I'm trying to watch. It's Saturday. I'm watching a zillion college football. I'm in Ann Arbor, downtown at a restaurant. They didn't have the TVs in the section I'm at, which was total torture, because you can't put me in a restaurant with TVs, and then in the section of the restaurant without the TVs. I, it was, it, I'm running around. To, my phone's not working. I'm trying to follow the game, but I finally get in my car, and I'm driving, and the Yankees are at 5-3 in the ninth, and you're like, okay, it's over. They're going to end up winning, but then Peralta was pitching. Uh, Straw bought a double. They bring in uh, Clark Schmidt. Now, people said, why isn't Clay Holmes in the game? Clay Holmes 
Jones is not Marion Rivera. I mean, I've been watching the Yankees for the past month, you know, following Judge and everything. The Yankees relievers have been poor. I mean, not even good or average. So I, I don't think it was so bad to bring in Schmidt pitching. But, I, you know, they, again, they give up a Rosario to hit, Ramirez hits a single, bases loaded, and then Oscar Gonzalez, I love the name Oscar Gonzalez, comes up and, uh, and hits a walk-off hit. The same hit, Tommy, same hit he had against Tampa uh, for a walk-off on the 15th, and uh, uh, that was so they end up winning the game 6-5. It was just such a, you know, to have a walk-off hit like that and win the game when the Yankees go in the ninth inning with that five. You know, there is no Mariana Rivera that's going to come in through that bullpen. So they, it's hard, and, and that's what happens. And now they've now blown, a, you know, another game. So going into game four now, Yankees backs are against the wall. They get their ace back on the hill, Garrett Cole. He's got to deliver once again, and he does. You know, it was a boring game, sort of. I was watching that with a football, and, and Cole pitched great against Quantrill and won, but Cole, seven innings, six hits, two runs. I mean, it's really quieted critics, maybe me too, because I, I, he pitched. And Bader, Harrison Bader had another home run in this game. I mean, Judge didn't really do much, but it was Bader. But uh, they got the lead, and then Holmes pitched in the eighth, Peralta in the ninth, and uh, and now they're set going now in for they're going to use Tyon for Savali. But the, all the Indians relievers have not pitched so much. So they're going to be able to use their bullpens a lot. Maybe Bieber might even come back for a couple innings. I mean, this is all hands on deck for a game five, so you expect anything sort of Garrett Cole coming in uh, for the Yankees that are going to pitch to, in this game. Garrett Cole went to Aaron Boone a couple of hours ago and said he's available if needed. So you never know. I would prefer to not have to have that happen, but Cole said he's ready if his number gets called. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. 15 minutes or so, Tyler Kepner uh, from the New York Times is going to join us. But Ira, so the third part of your big four week was heading to Michigan to watch Penn State. You weren't super confident in what Penn State was going to do in this game, but we'll talk about all that, and let's talk about, had you actually, you'd been to Ann Arbor before, correct? Three times, two times before, I love it. It's a must, it's a must go to. If you're a sports fan, it's 110,000 fans. There's not, the stadium is the big house. It looks like a high school stadium on the outside because you literally walk down, you enter in row like 80. And then you walk 80 rows down to the first level. It is crazy. And it's everyone was dressed in maize. The fans all tailgate all over the place. Like, they're everywhere around the stadium. And it's right in downtown Ann Arbor. I, the fans are great. They're wonderful fans. The students are great. No, uh, no heck, they're not Ohio State. One fan was, like, going crazy. And I said, don't act like Ohio State fans. And it shut them up. But, uh, but it, it was, it's a, it's a, it, if you love college football, you have to see, you have to see a game at the big house um, with the bands coming out and just everything. The stadium, I have those pictures on Instagram, you just don't see a stadium that's that big. Maybe the Rose Bowl has that same setup, but it, it, but really you don't have two, like one made, it's just one level. There's no decks or anything, and then that's the stadium. So let's talk about uh, the game itself here, Ira, because like you said, this the stat lines are pretty damning here. Michigan... All, all, what happened was Michigan went down there, and it was 4th and 4th 11. They kicked a field goal. Michigan drove the ball the first three times a game whenever they wanted, do whatever they want. I was sitting in the end zone in the seat, so I could see everything. The holes were open. Just on 4th down, on a 3rd down a couple of times at the goal line in the red zone, they couldn't convert, so they have to kick field goals. So it's 13 nothing. At that point in the game, they had 126 yards to 9 for Penn State, 8 first downs to 1. And then Sean Clifford, so Penn State has run nothing. They have two, three outs. They did this hidden ball trick where he handed it to Singleton. 
I swear I think he made the ball disappear. He must have put it in his pants or something. I don't know where the ball went, but no one saw the ball, including everyone on the team. And I'm up high with my binoculars, and I, could, and I suddenly see Clifford running down the field. I'm like, what's he running down the field for? And I realize he has still the ball. The Michigan players give him a 20-yard head start. They still tackle him, but that was like the one play that Penn State had on offense. Then he, they ended up scoring, so then it was like 13-7. Or 13-7. And then the next thing you know, Michigan throws the ball. McCarthy throws the ball. It hits off two Penn State players on the helmets, bounces around. Suddenly, Curtis Jacobs runs it for a touchdown. And next thing you know, it, it's 14-13 Penn State, who has done nothing the entire game, and they're up 14-13. Michigan gets a touchdown, a field goal, made it 16-14. But how about for this half? They're up by two points, and in the first half, they had 18 first downs for Michigan and one for Penn State. 18 to 1, 280 yards to 80, uh, and, and, and all the yards really were on that one run by Clifford. And the second half, Penn State actually got a field goal, made it 17-16, and then suddenly, then, then for me, like, Penn State could win this game, but you can't, like, they're getting destroyed, but how can the world, they're up 17-16, but then all Michigan did was kept scoring, 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 they ended up having 418 yards rushing to Penn State's 111, it's the first five games, Penn State gave up 399 yards, they gave up in this game more than the five games, they were ranked fifth in the country in rushing defense, but it was terrible. I mean, time of possession was 42 to 18. Uh, it was one of the worst. Donovan Edwards for Michigan had 173 yards. Blake Corm, 166 yards. It just absolutely uh, I, I, it was like, the, as I said, the third worst game on Penn State's defense against the Rush. And this is a team that went against Herschel Walker and George Rogers, Heisman Trophy winners. Nebraska, that Nebraska team that only ran the ball all the time. They only gave up four. I think I tried to find the stats of where they actually gave up more than 411 yards. And I think one was like the Jim Thorpe, where we had David Marinus on <laughs> back in the uh, 20s. You know, from Carlisle who had that. I mean, it was, it was the worst, one of the worst games. I mean, both teams came in 5-0. and Both teams came in undefeated. And we did, did beating nobody. And we saw that one team was a fraud, Penn State, and one team is going to challenge Ohio State, which is Michigan. So moving on to the next game, and Ira, you mentioned, you know, you're at the biggest stadium in college, but Neyland Stadium, pretty big too, 102,000 here, college game day on hand, number three, Alabama, number six, Tennessee, and I got to say, this may have been the best, most exciting college football game I'd seen since the 2006 Rose Bowl with, with Vince Young and Matt Leiner. This was just a phenomenal game. Well, I mean, I think every time Alabama loses, it takes like this crazy, like the Texas A&M game. <laughs> uh, you know, it has to be something. Georgia, I mean, they don't get blown. No one blows out Alabama. It, it, if you're going to beat Alabama, it's going to be crazy and historic. But again, Tennessee is, has not been a top 10 team since 2006, which is amazing. 98, they were national champs. Then they uh, fired Fulmore in 2008. And this is, then they went from Lane Kiffin to Derek Dooley to Butch Jones to Jeremy Pruitt all these years with three and sevens and five and sevens. So this is a proud fan base. I mean, this is a great, this is a great team. They just can't win. They're, they're awful. But they, they got Hudson Hooker uh, from Virginia Tech. It's amazing that, they, that, they, that, they, uh, that he was able to train out that Virginia Tech didn't realize. It's sort of like Penn State. Uh, with, you know, with Will, Will Levis, Levis letting yeah. him go, not realizing Hooker uh, was so good. He comes to Tennessee, just unbelievable. And uh, 28, they were up 28-10 in the first half. Then it was 28-20. And in the second half, it was 35-34 to start the fourth. And then Hooker threw a 70-yard touchdown pass to Hyatt. Hyatt had... Um, Hendon Hooker, I'm sorry, I called it Hendon Hooker. Uh, Hyatt had six catches for 207 yards and five touchdowns as a wide receiver. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then Bama then made it 42-42 with 10 minutes to go. Tennessee fumbles the ball. Bama scoop and score made it 49-42. Seven minutes left. You're like, okay, this game's over. 
Tennessee drives down there. This drive was crazy. On fourth and five in the Bama 28, uh, Kool-Aid McGinsey intercepted the pass. I thought it was interception. I, I thought this was a terrible call. I mean, they called pass interference on the interception on, on another a, a defender. So, I mean, Alabama fans are upset. I mean, pe- Alabama was penalized 17 times for like 130 yards. And this was, I thought, just a terrible penalty. Uh, but then Tennessee went in, scored 49-49. That gave, you know, a chance for uh, Bama to come in. And uh, Bama went, and they, they got it down to the Tennessee 32, first and 10 with 34 seconds left. And then Bryce Young threw it to Gibbs. That would have been a 20-yard catch play, setting up an easy chip shot field goal. He drops it. So now they're left with a 50-yard field goal, which their kicker missed, and Richard missed the 50-yarder. Then you're thinking, okay, there's only 15 seconds left. We're going to overtime. But Hooker, they get it in there. Hooker throws a, a pass to McCoy, 23 yards, and then or there was a fit, and then gets down, and they kicked like a knuckle. It was a knuckleball almost. Charles McGrath for a field goal to win the game as the time expired. But I mean, to think that and you know to think that they were able to score with 15 seconds. I mean, it reminded me of the Buffalo Kansas City game, which we'll talk about in a second from last year, where just crazy ending of the game. It, it absolutely was phenomenal, and. Normally, I don't like fans storming the field, but I think they they deserved it in this one. They ripped the goalpost out, threw it in the river. I don't know if that needed to be done. But regardless, great win for Tennessee, and this is a team that's shooting for a national championship, which I, you know, nobody's been able to say in, in three decades. So good for right. them. Tennessee's undefeated. Now, remember, they're in the one that they play in two weeks. They're going to have play Georgia. I looked online at the game. I think the tickets are three weeks. The tickets are like $350, $400. They're going to be at the games. At, you know, so I think this is going to be a huge game. The Georgia-Tennessee game is just, at Georgia is going to be – that's for the SEC East title. I mean, interesting is that Mississippi has no losses. Alabama now has one loss. And you really have these four teams, Mississippi and Alabama in the West and Georgia and Tennessee in the East. And one of them, one of the, these teams are going to not in, be in the SEC playoff, and that's going to be all this dilemma. When we talk about the four teams in the playoffs, according to the SEC, they're going to say, put all four teams in. Forget about Ohio State. Forget Michigan. We'll just have the four SEC teams play in the playoffs. They, they would love that. <laughs> Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel at 734. I'm Mike Balsamo. Clemson and FSU. FSU started off this season really, on a really high note. Clemson's a really good team, though, Ira, and they, they did enough to get the win here. Yeah, I mean, Clemson, they were up, went up 34-14. Uh, they're looking like the Clemson. Now, they're, uh, DJ Ogilvy had uh, 203 yards, three touchdowns. Will Shipley had two, 121 total yards you know, rushing. It, Clemson now is looking like the Clemson of the years past, and, and last year was an aberration. But uh, they're undefeated, and they're rolling. They're going to play Syracuse next week. Uh, again, another undefeated team in the ACC. But again, this, this sort of writes the ship in terms of where we think in terms of the, the ACC and Clemson is the dominant team again. So the Tennessee-Bama game kind of overshadowed this one, but we saw another great game in Utah-USC. I watched the end of this game. Crazy. Um, remember, USC was undefeated. They're at Utah. Utah was favored in this game. Utah, USC, Utah had two losses. USC was undefeated. And USC went up to early 21-7. Cal Williams had a great game, 381 yards, five touchdowns. But Cam Rising, the quarterback for Utah, was just as impressive. I mean, their receiver, Dalton Kinjet Cade, had 16 catches. How about this in fantasy? 16 catches, 234 yards, and a touchdown. Uh, You would like to have that. But Utah drove down. Uh, They were down 42-35, and they scored a touchdown with uh, with like 40 seconds to go and went for two, got the two-point conversion, and USC wasn't able to match it. But a big win. That was They stormed the field, too. That was in Utah in Salt Lake City. So going to this next one, another great game, double overtime thriller between two ranked teams, TCU and Oklahoma State. 
both undefeated, and now TCU is the only undefeated team left in the Big 12. They uh, defeat Oklahoma State 43-40. Uh, just one of those, Max Dugan for TCU, Spencer Sanders for, for Oklahoma State, both great quarterbacks. Uh, TCU dominated this game, 5 or 10 yards to 280, but it was at 30-30 at the end of regulation, and uh, they ended up winning it in double overtime. But a big win for TCU in terms of, you know, they really now control the Big 12 and are uh, it's it's uh, they look if they are going to feed in the Big 12 they're going to have their they they should be in the national championship in the picture in terms of the college football playoff. Speaking of undefeated teams and teams that just seem to keep rolling, we saw Ole Miss face uh, face Auburn. Again, I saw Auburn play; they were terrible. But Mississippi, they look great in this game. Mississippi just decided it seems Mississippi with uh, Lane Kiffin. They can go. We're going to be a running passing team today. They decide to run. They had three running backs, or including their quarterback, that ran rushed for over 100 yards. Uh, and uh, Mississippi setting themselves up for, we talked about the Tennessee-Georgia game. Mississippi's going to have a big game against Alabama coming up. Let's talk about, you brought up uh, Syracuse earlier and how they're undefeated in the ACC. They were going to take on NC State, uh, number 15 versus number 18. Yeah, I feel bad for NC State. They really, they lost their quarterback, Devin Leary, who's a pro prospect. Um, he was hurt last last week to Clemson. Syracuse is 6-0. and I just love the fact, the stat, third time, since 1935. So I know a lot, I have a lot of friends that are Syracuse fans. They're going absolutely crazy about this team, but I think it's all going to end next weekend, but uh, it's, it's good for them now so far. So Miami's had an up and down season. Uh, Tyler Van Dyke has had an up and down season for someone who has, you know, aspirations to be an NFL quarterback, but he looked like he's starting to get, get things together. They're three and three. They beat Virginia Tech. As I said, Virginia Tech, uh, gave up Hooker, who might win the Heisman Trophy this year. So that's a bad move on Justin Fuentes, their coach's uh, fall part. But Miami was up 20 to nothing. And, and it's sort of a bounce back after the losses they've had, the three losses in a row. It was a, Every game now seems like a must-win for Miami. Uh, they play Duke next week. But uh, it was a win where Tyler Van Dyke looked great. And you'll, you'll wonder, Turvin, uh, like – uh, you wonder, you know, what he's inconsistent. I mean, they, you know, some games he looks fantastic, but other games he looks terrible. Let's talk about Stanford, Notre Dame, and Notre Dame just doesn't look like the same team uh, that they have in years past. Stanford is two and four. They they haven't beat uh, a Division One team all year. They really were terrible, and they came into Notre Dame and won sixteen fourteen. And we mentioned this because Notre Dame is so popular, and also Notre Dame is now three and three. But this is a team, Notre Dame, that is one of the top you know four or five teams ranked number three in this going into the season. Uh, just absolutely unbelievable the fact what where the season is going for Notre Dame, and it seems like it's only going to get worse. And clearly, they were way overranked when the year started. So LSU and Florida, the Gators are another team that we had really high hopes for this season, and it just hasn't come together. No, I mean, this game was intriguing. I didn't get the chance to watch it, but I, you know, I followed it. And the fact that LSU, you know, they were dominating, they were up 42-21, but they really, uh, you know, going five, they're, they won 45-35, and they, it's just, it's like, I was waiting, you know, LSU's this up and down team, and I'm intrigued to see how what LSU now is they keep improving. I mean, this game, Alabama plays at LSU this year, so we'll see where LSU goes, but this is a team that's, that, that, that looks like, I mean, this is a good win, and Florida needed this. I mean, Florida needed this win and to, to lose, like, and they weren't even really in the game. I think it's a bad, pretty bad loss for Florida. What are we watching next week? Um, Georgia, Ohio State, and Tennessee all have, like, nothing. Georgia's off. Ohio State is 29 points over Iowa. And Tennessee plays UT, UT Martin. Really, the only big games are Syracuse at Clemson, uh, Mississippi at LSU, uh, and uh, Texas at Oklahoma State. But it's not in terms of the top, tippy-top teams. You don't have some of these 
super games. I'll be at Penn State at Minnesota. Oh, but UCLA and Oregon should be a good game because UCLA is the one undefeated Pac-12 team uh, that's still out there. Oregon's favored by six in that. But I love watching UCLA play uh, with uh, Jordan Thompson-Robinson, their quarterback, so exciting to watch. But, um, but next week, but then you're going to see the week after. That's when, when all the, that's the Penn State-Ohio State game, whatever. But it is intriguing that Georgia's off. Ohio State has a fairly easy game. Tennessee is an easy game. See what happens. Let's bring in Tyler Kepner. This is Iron Sports, uh, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. Uh, we're honored to have Tyler Kepner, author of The Grandest Stage, The History of the World Series. What a perfect time to have you on the show, considering we're in the middle of the uh, playoff season. So, Tyler, thanks a lot for coming on and talking about your new book. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. So, you're probably an expert on the World Series, considering you've covered it for 22 years uh, for the New York Times, and you've only missed two games. So that uh, is pretty much exciting. And, you know, we all love the World Series and you're the person to talk to with this new book that came out. Yeah, thanks. I've always uh, I've always loved the event. I always wanted to be around it, be a part of it. Um, obviously, never you know going to play, but um, just to, to be able to witness it and to 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 talk to the participants um, past and present for this book and, and, and annually for the times is uh, is really special. Something I, uh, I, I really try to cherish. Well, the platform of the World Series illuminates a career. Um, some great players have become even immortals. And you mentioned, I mean, there's really this one person in one own category, Reggie Jackson. I mean, even in other sports, when you have Brady and Jordan, there's only one Mr. October. Reggie, talk about in terms of how Reggie's career and how, in terms of the, how he's been defined by his postseason and World Series performances. Yeah, he, he embraced that that. Uh that responsibility you know the first world series he was in he, he he was he was hurt he had hurt himself in the last game of the championship series for oakland actually stealing home um of all things and so he was on crutches for that series of the a's won without him and he always remembered that that feeling um of of being on the sidelines and and of how precious it is to get that opportunity and so he kind of vowed to to uh, always you know take advantage of it and see himself as the um the guy everybody had to worry about, you know, to, to kind of believe his own hype and, and live up to it, challenge himself. And he did, you know, he, he loved that. Um, he loved being known as Mr. October. First of all, it's a great nickname, but, but also it just, uh, you know, it, 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 it put pressure on him knowing that people were expecting that. And he liked it because he, he wanted to believe that all the good things that could come from it um, would come his way. And, and they did. And then you mentioned we just saw the captain on ESPN in terms of the series with Derek Jeter and the Yankees. And you mentioned like some people don't just become greater to the point that Jeter's numbers. He, he literally, you said, almost played an entire season, 158 games in the playoffs, was the same as the, his regular season numbers. It's just that he was able to maintain it and in those big moments. Right, and that is that itself is impressive, um, you know, because you're not playing any bad teams in October. The the uh, the, the competition is, is really high, um, but it just you know it it just goes to show you that um, you know somebody we think of as being always always clutch and always coming through, um, you know, didn't always come through, and that's fine. He he came through at Derek Jeter levels um, in the in the postseason, and that was that was great. Um, but the idea that he somehow became this, um, you know, video game sort of guy who could hit 600 at, at, or, you know, bat 1,000 at will, um, that's, that's not 
that's not accurate. But but shorthand, you know, the shorthand is thought he always came through in the clutch. Well, you know, no, he he was he was Derek Jeter in the clutch, and that, that was great. He wasn't Superman. Um, he was himself, and and that's that's really the best way to be um, to not try to get outside yourself and uh, just channel who you are in those moments. Yeah, you mentioned in the book it was great how you talk about the clutch gene and all those things that come up. And I guess one player who we know in common player in terms of in, in recent times, uh, Clayton Kershaw. I mean, he is you know nine and ten in the playoffs, four twenty eight ERA. It's someone who is considered one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Who just you know it's had some good playoff performances, but it's just not so many bad ones. I think <laughs> take over the uh, good ones that he's had. Yeah, I think he did a lot to to reverse that though in in, in 2020. Um, you know, his his career he got his career postseason record o- over 500 now. He's 13 and 12. Uh, you know, three and two in the World Series. He's had some clunkers for sure, um, but the Dodgers always asked him to do a little a little more. You know, like he he pitch on short rest a lot. He'd pitch uh, in, in relief a lot, and that that ended up I think taking a toll on him. Um, you know, I think on yeah, he had getting that ring um, was was huge for him as legacy. And if you look, yeah, the ERA is a little high. Another one now basically has a full season of work in the postseason, 194 innings, and the ERA 4.22. That's not what we're used to from Kershaw, but you know, he has more strikeouts than innings. Um, he only you know 213 strikeouts and 50 walks. That's still pretty good. You know, a whip just over one. That's pretty good. Um, he's given up a few homers that have hurt him. But uh, I think I think on the whole, Kershaw's had a lot of uh, great uh, performances too. Um, but he has a very high bar, and um, sometimes he he has he has not uh, he has not gotten it done. That's true. And we're talking about the postseason, and you mentioned how the pressure you went through all the managerial decisions, and it's like you know I guess baseball is a little different. During the regular season, managers 162 games, they make decisions. There's games the next day, nothing's magnified. Football, we talk about should they gone for two, not gone for two, a whole week, so it's a little magnified. And then in the playoffs, then everyone, and these these uh, managers make decisions that last forever. And you talk about this, you just mentioned about the short rest, you know, bringing starters in with three days rest, uh, bringing starters in relief. Sometimes it works. The Madison Bumgarner the Randy Johnson, and other times it doesn't work at all. Jack McKeon, um, you know, just just go for it with, with Josh Beckett, his young ace in game six. He didn't want to waste any time. He didn't want to get to – he was a New York guy, he did, Jersey guy. He did not want to get to a game seven at Yankee Stadium. He didn't think that was a good setup for his team. So he, he took the uh, risk of bringing back a young pitcher on, on short rest, and, and Josh Beckett uh, was just not – just just cocky and oblivious enough to uh to to go out and do it. He went he went on an inning through a shutout um on short rest. It's it's the last clinching complete game we've had in the World Series and it was nineteen years ago. So that was that was a moment I wanted to spotlight when the manager maybe went against what um you would do now, um, as they always try to protect the pitcher so much. He just went for the win and he got it. And then you mentioned like even defensive changes, you know, sometimes managers put people in. It was, and you mentioned the McNamara decision in 1986, leaving Bill Buckner in, instead of bringing in Stapleton. And then the ball goes under, Bill Wilson's hit goes under uh, Buckner's legs. Uh, and a decision that, you know, that has been talked about year after year. World Series comes time, you know, bringing in a defensive replacement at the end of the game. Yeah, I really wanted to try to get that uh, from a different viewpoint. So I reached out and I was able to to talk with Larry David about um, the episode he did of Curb Your Enthusiasm with Bill Buckner, uh, because Bill's no longer with us. But but, uh, Larry was able to 
talk about what it was like to have him um, guest star on his show and to be the hero in New York and, and get you know right off on on everybody's shoulders for for catch, making the catch it and and what that meant to uh, to a comedian uh, who's not usually given to the the, the, the sentimental side of things um, and, and why why Larry David um, felt compelled to to uh, sort of redeem Buckner for a, a national uh, entertainment audience. And, and, and he was great. He was great about that. And then, you know, there's been just so many great moments. I, I mean, I've been watching it, you know, decades and decades, and I can't go back to the old Yankees and those things. But you did mention about the Babe Ruth. I mean, what's probably one of those talked about shots is, I, of course, there's no video, but the called shot, the Babe Ruth, and whether he really called the home run or didn't call the home run. I like that one. And then you mentioned the Kirk Gibson home run, which was pretty fit, which is, of course, very famous. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was part of the challenge was to try to um, try to – Write about these famous moments um, that if you're buying the book, you probably know uh, about a lot of the basics. But I wanted to get in some of the stories behind the stories, right? So, like, you know, right about the walk that set up um, Kirk Gibson's home run, you know, a, a walk by Dennis Eckersley, who never walked anyone, uh, to a 196 hitter um, named Mike Davis uh, that, that set that all up. You know, if he had just gotten Mike Davis, Eckersley, uh, even had a face. Gibson at all because the game would have been over. So um, those are the kinds of stories I was drawn to to, to try to to try to tell people some things that um, you know maybe they heard about at the time and 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 didn't didn't remember or or just to explain uh, explain some things they they do. And then I mean some of the most famous moments. I mean the George Bush you, you brought that about when he came in 2001 after the 9/11 coming out to the World Series and throwing the perfect pitch. And I forgot that Posada was not the catcher there at the time. You said one of the other Yankee backup backup catchers actually came out for that. Um, but there was just other moments about who throws the first pitch out and how that's done. I mean I I saw Vince Scully when he came out for the first pitch. That was pretty exciting too. So it's like that that whole ceremony around the game is is very neat. I, I really wanted to have some space there at the back to, of the book to uh, explore some of that, the, the, the ceremonial stuff, um, because to me it's, it's, it's not just about the, the game itself and the strategies, it's about everything that goes along with it. So you know, to talk to uh, the, the uh, country singer Charlie Pride before he died about um, you know, singing the national anthem in, in four different decades and how he, he, how he went about it and, and, and to get into some of those um, – you know, first pitches like talking to Todd Green, the Yankees backup catcher who, who caught the pitch from President Bush. Um, that was uh, that was cool too. I think I, I hope people enjoy that 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 part of it. Oh, and you gave us so many lists, the list of the their World Series team. You said there were so many Yankees that you had to create two teams, a World Series team and a Yankees team. And I liked your list where you listed some of these players that never played in the World Series, the Ken Griffey Juniors, the Frank Thomases, Rod Crew, some current players that you know never played in the World Series. Yeah, it just shows you how special it, it is. I mean, I remember talking with with a pitcher named Marty Bystrom from the Phillies in the early '80s, and and he, you know, did not have a very long career at all, but he got to go to he got to play in two World Series, and and when he played for the Yankees, uh, he was teammates with Phil Necro, who was in his mid 40s and and never got to do it. So that really, um, yeah, that really pointed out to Marty um, just how special it is to to get that chance because so many of the all-time greats, uh, you know, Roy Halladay, Edgar Martinez, Sammy Sosa, you know, Ernie Banks, so many of them never did. And then I'm sure a lot of controversy with you listed the best World Series. The number one was, I remember, and this is tremendous, John, Jack Morris, John Smoltz, 
91 Twins over Braves. Uh, and then you've mentioned, of course, Reds and Red Sox. Just talk about how you put this ranking. I mean, there's, of course, so many great series, but, but in terms of the Twins and Braves being ranked number one in your mind. Yeah, yeah. obviously it's, it's totally subjective, but I, I looked at it um, from a lot of different angles, and, and I felt like that World Series had the most um, – the the most good games for one thing, you know, some series might have a great finale, but all the games up to it weren't that interesting. Um, it was really, really compelling theater all the way through. Great fans, um, you know, uh, a, a part of the action there. The Braves had never been in it in Atlanta. Um, the, the Twins had won a few years ago. Both teams were coming off last place finishes, so it was a really surprise matchup. And you had Minnesota coming back to win. Uh, Game six on a Kirby Puckett homer, and then winning Game seven one nothing on a on a ten inning shutout by Jack Morris. Um, just you know, Hall of Famers doing Hall of Fame things, um, and you know, with moments that are gonna that were on their you know plaques in Cooperstown. That's how impactful those those uh, those games were. Do you think the expanded playoffs, I mean, every year, I mean, it's been going on for, for years. We first had the championship series and division series, and they used to play 154 games and 162 games and just go 154 games and go right through the World Series. Has it expanded the, as a, what, how has that affected how we view the World Series with having more playoff games and more playoff uh, chances for team players to do great and teams to do great? Yeah, I, I think it, it is. It, it, it makes it harder for sure to to repeat. I mean, we haven't had a repeat champion um, since the 2000 Yankees. That's the longest stretch in baseball history. Um, there's just too many layers to go through. The miracle really is that the Yankees did, um, you know, go through it uh, four times in five years in 96, 98, 99, and, and 2000. And they almost did it again in 01. So there's just so many opportunities now to, to be tripped up. Um, on the way to the World Series title um, that that didn't exist before, so um, you know I, I think it's uh, it's it's a nice mix um, to occasionally have different teams that kind of get hot at the right time. Um, maybe it doesn't reward uh, pure greatness as much as it used to, but um, people love it. I mean, you know, if you're a real baseball fan, it's it's hard to uh, it's it'd be hard to say that these playoffs aren't uh, really exciting. Uh, a really exciting addition to what for decades was just the World Series. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I just had, I was at these games and people say, oh my gosh, I love playoff baseball. Of course, it's, it's, so, it's so awesome. But Tyler, thanks so much for coming on our show. I know you're really busy pushing your book, The Grandest States, The History of the World Series. It just came out this week. It's available online. It's Barnes & Noble, Amazon, everything. I I read the book. It's great. I encourage people to get it. So thanks again, Tyler, for coming on Iron Sports. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Good stuff there with Tyler Kepner here, Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. We got to keep flying, Ira, running out of time, but you have been flying all week. You landed yourself in Pittsburgh where nobody gave you guys a chance against the Buccaneers. And what do you know? Tom Brady was going home with a loss. Yeah, I mean, 10 point underdogs, uh, lots of Bucs, Buccaneers fans. You know, Brady's record against the Steelers is 15 and 3. The Steelers, Kenny Pickett, rookie out of pit, uh, scores a touchdown, leads the team down an 11-play drive. They score a touchdown. And then Tampa got some field goals and everything. And at the halftime, it was 10-9. And then they traded field goals, 13-12 Pittsburgh, uh, you know, in the middle of the third quarter. And then Kenny Pickett gets knocked out of the game on a, uh, a white hit. I forget who, who knocked him out. But it, was a, it was a penalty, but they knocked him out with a concussion. So Mitch Trubisky comes back in there, and uh, he led this drive. It was third and 13. He threw it 14 yards to Pickens, and then he threw a, a touchdown pass to Claypool, a great pass to make it 20 to the 12. 
and then Brady and Brady fashion drives down. They score, make it 28-18. They don't get the two-point conversion. There's 438 left. So you're only up two. Buccaneers just need a field goal to, to win. And, and Trubisky has the ball. He has it at third and 15 on their own 20. Third and 15. And now remember, when you're up by two, you have to, you know, it's, it's, easy, it's easier to be down because you have four downs because you have to go for it all the time. But when you're third, you'd have to punt it. So it's third and 15. They have to get 18 yards to pass to Claypool. Then on third and 11 on their own 36, he throws another 28-yard pass to Claypool. And, and the Steelers were able to, to run out the clock. I mean, what I, we always talk about this. The best defense at the end of the game is to have the ball on offense, not turn it over. So Brady never got a chance to get the ball back, losing the game. 20-18. I mean, he threw 243 yards, one touchdown. He yelled at his offensive line. <laughs> Everyone knows about that. He went to the wedding of Robert Kraft on Friday night in uh, New York, which became an issue. Uh, but Treblitzky, I'll tell you what, he, he deserves a ton of credit. He made those plays that he made on third. He converted like four third downs that were crucial. And here's a person, a player who was benched uh, for picket and to be ready mentally to come in and step in and play like that. That's, that's all you could ask out of a player. Uh, what a gamer. So in a rematch of maybe the best playoff game of all time, the Bills and the Chiefs faced off at four o'clock. This one, not as high flying, but still a great game. What a, so I, I finish the game. I go to this place called Hyde Park, which is a bar right outside the stadium, packed, of course, and everybody's watching the Bills and Chiefs game. And uh, remember, the Bills have lost the AC Championship two years ago. They lost to Kansas City in the divisional playoffs last year. And th- this game mattered because you're like, whoever wins this game is going to have home field advantage probably in the playoffs a couple months from now. Uh, the uh, Bills fumbled the first possession. Mahomes, in three interceptions, his first possession. The Bills stopped on fourth down, and they had to punt. Uh, it was 10-7 at the half. Kansas City goes down Buffalo still. Kansas City comes down. Harrison Bucker hits a 62-yard field goal, makes it 10-10. And, uh, and then, you know, the second half, it was sort of the same situation in terms of what happened. And then with 7-38 left in the game, Kansas City's up 20-17. to and third and six, Mahomes is sacked by Miller, and they have to the, the force they forced a punt, five forty three, no first downs on that. And again, they they were up twenty seventeen. Mahomes could with a touchdown would have put that game away. Uh, five thirty one, Bills get the ball back, and they drive down fourth and one, uh, made a great run, you know, on their own thirty three, and with one minute left to go, they scored twenty four twenty, giving Mahomes a minute left. They're down four. Now, everyone keeps saying, oh, this series is so close. It doesn't matter what happens. Whoever has the ball last wins. Well, Kansas City had the ball last. They didn't win. In many ways, I I think Kansas City had two chances to win the game. They had a chance that first time when they went three and out. And they had a chance at the end of the game with a minute to go. I mean, Mahomes could score a touchdown with a minute to go. And then he throws an interception. So I think it was a pretty bad loss for Kansas City. I think for Kansas City now, maybe forced to go to Buffalo in January and play a playoff game. I think that's bad. And uh, uh, some interesting stories about this game is Bill Safety Jordan Pryor, or Poyer, he was cleared to play but not fly. So he drove 973 yards, sounds like not yards, 973 miles from Buffalo to Kansas City for the game. Something like I was doing when I drove from Michigan <laughs> to, uh, the, to Pittsburgh. So, but uh, a huge win for Buffalo and really you know, sets them up great for the, to, you know, if they win the rest of their games to, to have the – uh, championship game in Buffalo. Not all that much time left, but I want to talk about the Dolphins. And you can have good losses, and this team is just, you know, beat down with injuries. They're shuffling quarterbacks in and out. The Vikings are a really good team. They play pretty hard. 
Yeah, I mean, again, four straight games, the Dolphins quarterback is knocked out. I think there's this, I mean, there is this, now two is supposedly going to come back for the Steelers next Sunday. Um, the 16-10, the Vikings were leading, the Finns were driving, Waddle fumbled the ball, that hurt. Uh, then it was 24-10 uh, Vikings. We've talked about the Vikings. I like them. I think they're really good. I think they might be the second or third best team in the NFC. They played well. Um, but again, you cannot, I mean, these, you cannot, Skylar Johnson starts the game, he gets knocked out, Bridgewater comes in. It's, you can't win the football games if your quarterback down four straight games keeps getting knocked out of the game. Um, and hopefully if Tua comes back, he can stay healthy the rest of the way. Dalvin Cook, it was nice to see he had a great game. He played high school football only, I think, 10 miles away and uh, had a really good game for the, for the Vikings, who are now 5-1, and one, and the Dolphins fall to 3-3. Three and three. I don't know what's going on with the Packers, but you've got to be worried if you're in Wisconsin right now because this team just doesn't look good at all. Yeah, I mean, the Jets – Offensive coordinator is Michael Floor and his younger brother, Matt, who is the Green Bay Packers coach, but is like the everything goes with Pat Ron Vong for the Packers. They can't win in the end of the game. The, the Jets, everyone's saying how great they played. They were one for 11 on third downs, one for 11. They had 14 first downs for the entire game, only 270 yards. But when you get a block punt for a touchdown, when you, when Brees Hall, the rookie running back from Iowa State, makes some good runs, uh, and Rodgers didn't play well, he was sacked four times, had a lot of drops. But it was, you know, 27 to 10 at home at Lambeau Field. Bad loss. Now the Jets are 4 and 2. And both you and I were wrong. I, I really didn't think the Jets were this good, but I don't know how good they were. I mean, I didn't think they played that great, but the Packers are just awful. Yeah, it's it losing to the Giants and the Jets in the same year. When's the last time that happened to a team? It's got to be over a decade ago. Um, let's wrap it up here. We've only got a, a couple of, a minute or so left here. What else do we see besides the New York Giants going to 5 and 1? Yeah, I mean, the Patriots winning with, with uh, Bailey Zappi uh, with 309 yards, two touchdowns. And he might, you know, be the starting quarterback now for the Patriots because they look good now in back-to-back weeks. They're 3-3 three and three after starting the year one-on-one. The Ravens, the Baltimore Ravens now have, they are the kings at blowing games. I mean, they had, again, two touchdown leads on teams. The Giants come back and win. I mean, and this game was even worse because they really had it won. They were up a t- They were up by with a minute and a half to go, uh, and Lamar Jackson throws a, an interception. Giants, uh, Barkley went and scores. Uh, so they fall to 3-3. Three and three. Giants are 5-1. and one. And the Eagles-Cowboys game last night, the Eagles won. Cannot believe how good they are. I still am not sold by them. <laughs> the Cooper Rush uh, finally lost a game. Uh, we'll get Dak, Dak Prescott in next week. And then we can talk about Denver at the Chargers Monday Night Football tonight. So we get to watch Monday Night Football and baseball. Uh, the Chargers are four-point favorites. But I'm telling you, the way the season has gone, and Denver looks awful. But if Denver wins, I can't predict this. I mean, Denver, to me, could win by 30 points. Like, I just don't know because the Chargers themselves are very inconsistent. We don't know what Zach Stanley, you know, we don't know uh, what he's going to do as the coach of the Chargers, some crazy plays. But this is, uh, this is Brandon Staley, uh, what's going to happen in this game. Yeah, I, I'm going to take the Chargers and the points. But, yeah, you don't know which team is going to show up. The Broncos just look so bad. I could never – Take a bet on them uh, even getting a couple of points. Ira, what are you doing this week? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a chance I could go to the Phillies game on Friday. So the Phillies would, would play the Padres in game three in Philadelphia. And then Saturday, Penn State, Minnesota in Penn State. And then I would go, of course, see the Dolphins Steelers on Sunday. The Steelers haven't played in, in uh, Miami since 2016. So it's been six years. So I'd be excited to see the Steelers Dolphins down in, uh, in Miami. Uh, it'd be exciting to see my Steelers down against the Dolphins. It'd be fun. We're out of time. Thanks so much to Tyler Kepner. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.